Hi, Cosmic Weirdos. Welcome back to another episode of The Spiritual Gaze. I'm one of your hosts, Brandon. And I'm your other host, Angel. And this is our twice-monthly podcast dedicated to exploring the wide reaches of spirituality without pretending that it all makes sense. Because we ain't pretenders over here. No, we are not. We are keeping it realers over here. Real as and this is our very first podcast that we are recording in the new home in mm-hmm. the new spirit room so if things sound a little different we are just still working out the kinks <laughs> yeah it's mercury retrograde so obviously there are going to be some snags in the technological threads but yeah, we'll work it out we're working it out we're making it through mm-hmm. uh should we introduce ourselves yes please I'm Angel Lopez. Yes, you are. I am a writer of many things and a producer of some feature films. And I'm an astrologer and a spiritual queeler and a mystic for the ages. Yes, queen, especially this age. Yes. This age of Aquarius. (laughs) And you? I'm Brandon Alter. I am a spiritual queeler as well. I'm a tarot reader an astrologer, a writer, and a performer. And I'm actually staring at our little bookshelf here in the spirit room that for the first time has all our astrology books on the top shelf and all our tarot books on the bottom shelf. And it just feels so beautifully organized. My fourth house is very happy right now. Good. Grounded. Yeah, I'm feeling, I'm starting to feel grounded in this new space. We've been here for like a little over a week we moved in the midst of a rainstorm and a global pandemic, and mm-hmm. we're here to tell the tale. We are. And we're staring out at these gorgeous mountains that frame the north wall of the spirit room. And we also have lots of critter neighbors here at the new house. We do. Bobcats, whom I've received a lot of requests via Instagram to name. So we have to figure out what to name the Bobcats. I was thinking Pride for one of them. Sure. And maybe like king for the other. I like that. All right. Pride and king. Yeah, that sounds good. And uh, coyotes. Yes. And lots of ground squirrels. Saw a bunny yesterday. Yeah, some bunnies. And some really cute little birds. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, they're so tiny. They're like teacup size. And they all like gather on the front lawn and they all just like eat the grass and gossip. <laughs> so should we do a little check-in? Yeah. Well, babes, why don't you go first? Why don't you check in with me and the gazers and just let us know what's going on in your heart? Um, well, yeah, this is kind of a weird one for me, everybody, um, because about two days ago now, my father passed away, which are words even just speaking out of my mouth are becoming interesting to adjust to and I'm definitely riding the emotional waves of it we had a beautiful relationship um, but it was definitely a unique one and it came with some complications but particularly from the early part of our life and these later years of our of our shared experience um, we're really full of love and, and he was just like, I think the greatest walking teacher that I've had because he taught me a lot about 
what it means to evolve. And, you know, don't get me wrong, he was still stubborn AF, which he also probably taught me. <laughs> but he did allow himself quite a transformation while he was here. He was definitely the, like, walking epitome of Scorpio. So definitely a teacher of Scorpio for me. Yeah, he definitely was. I mean, the man was literally a detective. A homicide detective. A homicide detective and loved it. Who hid money around his own house. <laughs> yes. Pretty, pretty Scorpio. Very Scorpio. But had a killer sense of humor and a really big heart and made everyone feel at home um, like they were family. So yeah, I'm, I'm processing all of it. I'm um, just trying to lean into all of the feelings and will you tell the gazers the story of the firework that happened like three nights ago yeah so i had been um sort of his last day we were um at the family home and um some folks had kind of congregated out in front just to kind of be around one of my dad's old work buddies was there and we were chatting and kind of sharing some stories and i was struck by a story that my dad when I was young, he, you know, had kind of made a lot of friends in the neighborhood, quote unquote friends, through his police work. And uh, he used to take me on 4th of July morning to these like apartment complexes and be like, all right, you need to stay in the car. And he would like go out and come back kind of wielding all of these like illegal fireworks and even like it helped me kind of choose them. And this is when, you know, you couldn't like just like you could buy like the ground fireworks here in, in California, but you couldn't get the ones that like, you know, explode in the sky. And but he knew I loved those. So um, we would get them and then we'd like be the ones on the block who could like who were like shooting off the big fireworks. This is nowadays like everyone has them, but <laughs> back then it was more rare. So anyway, I was just kind of sharing that story and like just how it was one of my you know kind of favorite memories of, of mine with him. Later that evening, Brandon had, was there with me and we were walking to the car. We walked out. We had stepped into the house. Um, I think Brandon was saying goodbye. And we stepped out and got to the driveway and suddenly this like massive firework just exploded <laughs> in the sky. Yeah. And it was like just one and it was perfectly timed for us. Yeah. Like in a little clearing between two trees, this like one perfect, beautiful firework. Yeah. And I just like shocked still. Yeah. And I even said, not knowing about you talking about the fireworks earlier that day, I was like, babe, it's your dad. Yeah. And I said, oh my God, Brandon, standing right, basically where we're standing, I just had talked about this, uh, this earlier that day. So there's obviously a profound connection between us and it will continue on yeah for the rest of my life here i'm sure that's me <laughs> but grateful to have this new space and he i know was so proud of us that we got here and um was so happy and i'm just so happy to be here staring out at these gorgeous mountains and having some solitude to surround myself with. And you're doing a beautiful job, honey. Thank you. Doing well, so are you. Job. <laughs> you're being an amazing support. So thank you. Makes me happy to do it. But anyhow, <laughs> how are you going to follow that one up, Alter? Girl, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to try. How are you? Oh, you know, I'm... Look, I think I've said it on the program before, you don't 
step into being a healer by like skirting away from the difficult and the uncomfortable and illness and death and sadness and trauma. So in some ways, you know, I'm happy that my skill set allows me to show up in this way, but also like my heart breaks for you just to see like what you're going through and to see what's happening, you know, for your mom and your sisters. It's hard, but I'm also feeling so nourished and supported by this new space and the nature around us. And I'm just excited to keep moving forwards. I feel like there's some momentum and we can just kind of keep moving forwards now. Mm-hmm. And speaking of momentum, I just want to say like the interview, the spirit talk that we oh, have today yeah. is kind of a dream come true. It was just something I kind of pulled out of the air uh, in January. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to cold call Rachel Pollock <laughs> via email and see what happens and found her email online. And she responded like within a day and agreed to come on to the show. And Rachel Pollock, if you don't know her, is such a prolific writer. I mean, not just of books on the tarot, but also an incredible writer of science fiction and fantasy, award-winning short stories and novels, and really is just such a beautiful intersection of all things queer, spiritual tarot, and creativity. And so the fact that we got to have her on the show and draw her out in conversation was kind of like a life highlight for me. So I don't want us to spend too much time here at the top because it's a long spirit talk. It's about an hour and I really didn't want to cut too much because it was also fucking good. Yeah. I mean, such a true inspiring pioneer. On so many fronts. On so many fronts. And so... I mean, in terms of like being trans, being spiritual, being a tarot scholar. I mean, she really paved the way for so many of the things that we do and we are. Yeah. So very, very uh, grateful. Very grateful. And she's also just a lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah, we had a good time. We had a really good time. Some cackles. Yeah. (laughs) But if you are into the tarot and you have never read 78 Degrees of Wisdom, which is kind of the Bible on tarot, you should definitely pick that up. And I just encourage you all to support her because her work is really extraordinary. Yes. Find her work. Purchase it. Get your lives. Yeah. And if you just like want a good read, you should pick up The Fissure King, which is one of her most recent novels, which is about like an urban shaman in New York. It's like very like private eye detective style, and it is fucking phenomenal. So I think without further ado, we're just going to roll into this episode's Spirit Talk. So we are here in the spirit room with Rachel Pollock. We are so excited. I told Rachel, I think in an email, I'm a little giddy to have you here. Um, uh, Rachel is a celebrated author. Uh, she's also what I would call the high priestess of the tarot. She has you know, written and published so many books on tarot and really made it accessible to a contemporary audience. And she also is a ritualist and... Um, what else am I forgetting, Rachel? It's, it's quite daunting to introduce you because you have done so much. I write uh, novels. Yes. Yeah, I've had uh, two award-winning fantasy novels. And I've also written comic books. Yes, a Doom Patrol. And I yeah. had the opportunity yeah. to go through and read all of those uh, issues before That's speaking great. with you. That's great. found them. It's really hard I to I found find. them online, actually. So, really? Wow. And it was... So on, you, you saw them online or did you find a source for them online? No, I actually read them online. There was a... Look, so someone's done that. Okay, someone's yeah. put them online. Okay. I wonder if that was done with permission because DC Comics owns them, you know? Probably not. <laughs> yeah, the internet's like that, I yeah. know. It's, you know, it's a very tricky situation. 
I had um, somebody, uh, I somehow became aware of this um, online site that's devoted to science fiction. And they had a whole module, their whole, you know, quite a lot. It was quite extensive uh, of one of my short stories. And they printed the story and then they had um, all this analysis of it and this praise and lots and lots of people joining in and saying, you know, how great it was and stuff like this, which is very nice. So on the other hand, they did not ask my permission. They didn't tell me. And they sure as hell didn't pay for it. Yeah. Right. And they obviously, obviously thought that the fact that they were so you know, praising on my story was all that was necessary. Because they didn't tell me because they might not have given me permission. It's, it's, it's shocking. You know? Yeah. Well, the idea of permission just in general, both in ordinary reality and in non-ordinary reality, is something that might be interesting to discuss with you just because... Good question. Good point. Yeah. Um, it's something we talk about sometimes, like, mm-hmm. what is the nature of spiritual consent? <laughs> what a great question. Wow. Um, and even in terms of giving readings or doing journey work for people, being really clear about what the permissions are required, because you can see in ordinary reality too, just that story you've shared, people get real sloppy and think they have a right to kind of dig into or expose whatever they want just because they feel connected to it. Well, also because the internet makes it so easy. Right. Mm-hmm. All they have to do is take something and print, scan it, and there it is. <laughs> there it is. Or they, ha- or they could just copy something online and and put it on their site and claim it's theirs, and there it is. You know, yeah. and it's really difficult to do anything about that. What are some of your guidelines in terms of permissions and consent around doing spiritual work? Well, it's hard to describe. I don't do a lot of channeling type of things. I've almost none, and I don't do um, how to put. It, I don't do things where I go into the person's aura or anything like that. Because mostly this, I use the tarot as a sort of way of communication. Mm-hmm. That in a certain sense, we're both meeting in tarot world. Ah, uh, yes. Me and the other person. And so by asking for a reading, they are already giving consent. For sure. It's more tricky when it comes to asking about a third person. Right. Right. For a long time, no one would do this. No one. The ethical tarot readers wouldn't do it. And I was one of those people who really took a strong stand about that, that you shouldn't read, um, partly because it was unethical, but also partly because you couldn't really tell if you were really getting a true sense of that other person because it was being filtered through the person wanting to know. And then um, what happened was a couple of things. One was that um, the Lunar Mon cards, I don't know if you know what those are, they're a fortune-telling set of cards in the 19th century, had a huge, huge flurry a few years ago. There's still quite a few people, but not like it once was. And those are totally fortune-telling. There's nothing else. There's no spiritual exploration. There's no. There's actually almost no sense of self-awareness. Hmm. The Lunar tradition, and also in really pretty much traditional fortune-telling from that period, and into the modern period, too, for a lot of people, um, the person getting the reading is not looked at at all. Oh. The way Lunar Man works is there are 36 cards, mm-hmm. and the traditional, you lay all 36 cards. Then you look for where the man or the woman is, mm. and that's the person getting the reading. You know, But you don't learn anything about them. Everything else is what happens to them. Oh, okay. You know, who will they meet? Where will they go? Uh, what's going to happen with their job? What's going to happen with, do they have enemies? Do they have friends? And so on and so on, you know? And so, um, and that propelled the idea that, you, yeah, you should be asking about what's going to happen in a fortune-telling sense. And that involves what other people are doing. 
So there was that aspect of it. Then the aspect of, I started thinking that, you know, it's not up to me. A lot of people still do this thing. Like, like I said, I think this is, I was one of the people who initially put this idea forward, that you should have them change their questions. So if they say something like, um, I want to know, you know, is my husband having an affair? Mm-hmm. You say, well, you know, we can't really look at what someone else is doing, but let's look at your marriage from your point of view. What might you be doing, et cetera, et cetera. And then it struck me that, you know, who am I to tell them they can't ask what they want to know? Hmm. Right? Yeah, it's interesting. And I really, I actually, a woman named Susan Weed was instrumental. You know who she is? You've heard of Susan Weed? I haven't. She's an amazing woman. She's an herbalist, uh, a spiritual teacher, a feminist, um, many, many things. She's quite brilliant. And I was doing a workshop uh, at her center. Mary Greer and I were doing it together. And we were talking about this idea of, you know, what's an okay question? And she said, well, you know, they're not coming to you for therapy. They're coming to you for tarot reading. <laughs> you know, your job is to tell them what they want to know. Yeah, That's your only job. That's, she, that's how she did it, she said. And so when I started thinking about it, I thought, yeah, she's right. You know, who am I to tell them they shouldn't ask what they want to know? So then I start, that's what I started doing. And around the same time, I started having this technique of, it's, you know, instead of having a set reading, I will ask them, what do you want to know? And no matter what they say, I just write down word for word what they say, as best as I possibly can. And then every significant statement is a, a card. Mm. So again, the, the person about relationship, about marriage, person say, well, my husband and I have married 26 years. I write down married 26 years. Mm. And they say, and we used to communicate more, but not as much now. We used to communicate more, not as much now, and so on. And that would lead to, that would be the questions for the reading. I love oh, that. Wow. So that's that's a really powerful way to do reading. For sure. Well, especially yeah. too, I think for you being such a an amazing writer and you know and someone who is so gifted with the tarot, it's so interesting that you found a way to wed those two together <laughs> yeah. in some unique. Yeah, and also it's, it's stories. You know, yeah. To me, the um, the, the tarot reading is. An evolving story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not that interested in hard and fast predictions or revealing secrets of the other world or things like that. You know, I respect for people who do that for sure, but for me, it's really what story are the cards creating of this person's life, mm-hmm. and how does that story illuminate the actual life? Yeah, so I think that the tarot obviously sometimes it gives you very, very direct answers. You know, it's factual answers to a question. Other times, though, it gives you, because if someone met, someone knew you and did a story about you on television. <laughs> right. But it wasn't really all the facts of your story. Right. It was a story that would, you would understand yourself better. So there's that kind of reading, too. For sure. We talk about that in terms of like personal myth making. Like, mm-hmm. what's the story of your life that your descendants might tell of you around a campfire sometime in the well, future? That's a, that's a great thing. You know, that would be a great reading to do. Wow. Oh, right? Be. Yeah. I love the center of that. I think I'm going to try that. I'm going to try it with my friends and I, with Zoe, and see if she wants to do that together. Yes. Well, let us know how it goes. Yeah. Okay. That, that's a, I love that idea. Wow. What's the story of your life that your descendants will tell? Not the facts. What will they tell about The you? legend, right? So it, yeah. it gets a... Uh, it gets blown up a little bit, but mm-hmm. it's still true. It's just not factual. Yeah. And of course, if I'm going to be really honest, you know, I'm uh, I'm 75 years old, and I'm a writer, and I've done a lot of books and stuff. And so, 
I will, this is very almost embarrassing, but I do think about what will be remembered of me. Of course. If my books will be remembered and how I remembered, what will be remembered. Sometimes people who are really famous are not famous for what they were known for in life. Mm-hmm. These were Bram Stokers, right? Who wrote Dracula. Yeah, sure. That was a minor thing. His life. He was famous when he died as being the personal aide and factotum to the most famous actor of the English speaking world. I forget his name now. Oh. And he was his servant, and I think he was in love with him. Wow. Um, you know, because, but I don't have any more information than the fact that how Dracula came to be is so cool. So um, there's a scene in the movie of Dracula, in the book too, but I remember the movie, almost my favorite moments in the movie. So, um, Jonathan Harker, the victim, you know, mm-hmm. is um, in Castle Dracula. And it's, he's a weird time. He's like strange, you know, it's all weird and stuff. But he's like holding it together and trying to think it's okay. And then he has dinner with Dracula. And he, and he says, oh, it's a wonderful dinner later. He says, oh, oh, but Count, you're not eating? And, no, I have already eaten. <laughs> says, oh, you have some wine? No, I do not drink. Wine. <laughs> <laughs> so then Harker goes to bed, right? And he's lying, he's woken up. He sees these three ethereal women coming towards him, mm-hmm. almost like they're gliding. They're all in white. Mm. And they're like ghosts, but they're real women, actually seem like real women. And they're coming towards him, kind of gliding forward, like they're, you know, skating or something, on ice or, ice or something. Totally silently. He looks at them and he's kind of fixated and frightened. He, you know, he doesn't know what to do. And suddenly Dracula appears and he swirls his cloak and he says, he is mine. <laughs> and then back off. And then you see he comes forward and Harker's lying there just about frozen and Dracula bends forward and you see his teeth and his teeth go towards his neck and then it cuts to further on. And that scene was a dream that Bram Stoker had. Oh. And that was the source of the book. Oh, wow. Stoker had this dream that he was lying somewhere and these three women in white came towards him. And then this man all in black in like opera clothes came and said, no, he's mine. And, and banished that. Wow. When he woke up. Yeah. So I'm guessing, Henry Irving, that was the actor. I'm guessing that Stoker was the love of Henry Irving. But what's so interesting, like I said, is that that's what he was known for in life. Yeah. And now he's known for the greatest vampire novel ever written. And for pretty much creating, you know, the vampire mythology. Because there were vampire things before him, but they did not take hold in the way Dracula did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you never know what's going to survive. Yeah, I guess you can't control your legacy. If anything, if anything you know, what, what will be left of a person yeah. who did something in the public world? Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I fantasize if I really could accurately see into the future. Mm-hmm. What I want to look, or I'd be too frightened that I would be totally forgotten in my writing. And it's, it's embarrassing to say this because most people, of course, they're worried about that because they haven't done, you know, they haven't done big things outside. But what they would they, they want to know is how their families survived, how they're thought of by their family and friends. Right. So it's a big writer ego thing to wonder if your work is going to survive and what people will think of you. Sure. Well, it actually leads me to a question I wanted to bring to you which is about the idea that asking about the future might in its very essence change the future. And the sense Mm. of the future and just time in general is not being fixed. Yes. Well, this is a big question because a lot of people think time is fixed. No, I don't. How do you begin to wrap your head around the idea of divination in terms of asking about things that are always in flux? 
Well, the, the tarot reading is in flux too. Right. So I don't see the tarot reading as saying, this is absolutely going to happen. Mm-hmm. I just see it somewhat as saying, this is the way it looks right now. Mm-hmm. Except that after right now includes the tarot reading. Yes. Yes. It's very tricky. The extent to which the tarot reading will change what's being said the tarot reading. Because you can say that, well, the tarot reading will include how the reading will change the future. It will, it will incorporate into itself its impact on the person being read for. Right. And you talk about this as gambling, in a sense. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. That when you pull cards, you're kind of gambling with the future because it's an yeah. open portal where things can change, perhaps? Yes, yeah. And also, I love poker. Poker's a fascination <laughs> of mine. Okay. I only play in very little, low, very low-level friendly games. Um, but I just love it. It's just fascinating to me. And so I tried once to do a novel of tarot and poker. There's some good ones. There's a great one called Last Call by Tim Powers. Um, anyway, but I had this... I really went pretty far in merging the two things, except that I realized that my sense of poker was old. It was, you know, the old days of poker was kind of underground and illegal in lots of places. And now not only do you have Indian casinos everywhere, but you also have um, television tournaments. Right, yeah. And I just, that world I knew nothing about. I didn't know, the other world I only knew because I read books about it, but I had a feeling for it. So I stopped doing it. But yeah, but so my, my whole attitude, gambling or, or the future is very much incorporated into it, into the dynamic effect of a tarrying in process. Right. And they're both card games, essentially, whether you're yeah. playing poker yeah. or tarot. Here's something interesting. In Europe, uh, tarot games, other divinatory card things are called games. That's the standard word. Mm. Um, in Germany, a tarot is called a tarot spiel, a tarot game. Mm. In, in Holland, it's called tarot spell, same word, but S-P-E-L. And in uh, France, any tarot deck is called the jeu de tarot, the game of tarot. Mm. So the word game is incorporated into the title of tarot, despite the fact that the jeu de tarot is often used for deeply, deeply occult structures, which involve a very rigid interpretation. It makes me think all of a lot of what you're saying, um, it almost feels like it resonates as well with writing to some degree. Yeah, very you much know? so. Yeah, gambling yeah. with the future, <laughs> Put, yeah. putting yourself in front of a, in front of a page or you know now a screen maybe, you know. But a lot of what yeah. you're saying, yeah. Your writing is very strange that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've really been I've been really really fascinated by the fact that there's a level that writing when it's really good, and even when it's not, even when it's not even that good, which is unconscious. Uh huh. It's not like not channel because you're conscious. You know, you know you're doing it, and you're thinking what you want to put down, but you're doing stuff that you are not aware of. And this happened to me a lot, and especially with large projects like books. Um, only when it's done, and it's at the stage where the, I get back the printer's proof to look for mistakes in grammar or something like that, or spelling, and they say to me, "You are not allowed to change anything except for um, mistakes." to correct copy editing mistakes and that, everything else you cannot change anything. And that's the only, that's the first point in which I see what the book is about. Mm. And I, I, it's been about something in my mind and still is, that's like, not even the surface, it's like several layers, but underneath all that, or maybe really alongside all that, 
there's something about me that's going on in the book. Yeah. That's very, very intense. In fact, one of my books, I think it was Unquestionable Fire, when I realized that, I'd be kind, kind of freaked out. Oh my God. <laughs> what know, am I saying gonna, here? <laughs> you know, people are going to see me in right. a way that it's very naked, but nobody did. They didn't, just, it wasn't, they're not mean that I saw what was going on, but they, they saw what's going on in the book, not me. So, right. So yeah. Protected that way too. But that's a fascinating process. I love all. Yeah, and the unconscious is really the land of, of our dreams as well. Yeah, um, yeah. So I loved the story you told about Bram Stoker, and I'm so curious because you work in, in such like science fiction yeah. realms and speculative fiction realms. Ha, what has been your relationship with dreams and your writing? Has, have they connected I at don't, all? I don't too often have dreams contribute to stories. I, uh -huh. I do tarrying the stories. I think that's what I need to do one right now after we do this. It's probably the book I've done. I, and maybe a tarrying will fix it. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. what I will do, tarrying for dreams I know are meaningful and they will lead to books sometimes. Oh, okay. Or they'll help explain a book sometimes. And the book I'm writing now, the memoir, begins with two or three dreams. And then and the reading I did to, to understand them better. I'll tell you the first one, it's even before the book begins. It's like the preface only. And it's, it's really fun. I did it years ago. And I never did a reading until through this, wanted to use it in this book. And so the dream is very simple. So I dream I'm standing by myself by some wall. And someone comes up. And he's kind of like, it's a guy, he's kind of like, dark or maybe dressed in dark clothes and kind of slightly menacing looking, you know? And he comes up to me and he says, and he looks at me and he says something like, um, you cannot stand against me. I have done things. And so it says he's old enemy, you know? And then I look at him in my dream and I say, um, you cannot harm me. I too have spent time down among the underpinnings. Hmm. And then I woke up. Ooh. And so I forget now the first card, but the last card was what is meant by down among the underpinnings? And it was the death card. Hmm. So it meant I'd, I'd been in the land of the dead. A lot of the book is about that, is being in the land of the dead. Not, not in a psychic sense of the other side or visiting dead people. In the sense of just being in that realm of energy mm -hmm. that's beyond life. When I was 15, I was diagnosed with terminal bone cancer. And that's true. I mean, it's a long story, but I was expected to die. There was no hope, the doctors said. They told my parents, they didn't tell me this, thank goodness. They told my parents. Okay. And my parents did lots of prayers. And when they opened me up, what they found was a large calcium deposit and not cancer. And no one uh, had ever seen anything like that before, apparently. Um, the surgeon got to write a big article in the medical journal. And everyone in the hospital was crowded into the galleries watching this because it was so strange. Wow. You know? So I did a reading and I, I asked, the first question was, what happened when I was 15? And what I really wanted to know was, was it cancer? And then you know, my parents' prayers changed it. And they made vows. Like, you can't ask that. Because so I said, what happened? You know? mm -hmm. So the card was the chariot. And I did this card and it was in a classic. So people were talking about, the chariot is willpower, surrendering to divine will, not fighting it. So I said, wait, wait, I said, wait. Astrologically, what is the connection of the card to the chariot? And then when I said, it's cancer. So the cards found the only card in the entire deck 
that could say absolutely yes, it was cancer. Wow. It doesn't matter. Actually, the cancer is meant as an astrological uh-huh. um, symbol, but it's the word. The word is wow. the word. You know, it's a it's pun, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, James Joyce, Finnegan's Wake is all based on puns because puns have their own life, their own spiritual connection. Um, yeah, so that was another thing, you know? And uh, that, that, was, that was possibly the most amazing thing I've ever done in my life. That is it was wild. so intense. Yeah. So one of those readings were like, there's no question about it. You know, it's like, you're, you're not trying to figure out what it means. It's yeah. Right there. <laughs> right. You're like, okay, <laughs> got, the, got the message. Well, that makes me want to ask you a question that, that came in from one of our students and that I don't know if we can actually answer, but just okay. to talk about how does the tarot work? How does the tarot know? <laughs> Can you right? tell us? Like, <laughs> is it is there a spirit in the cards? Is how is there this this amazing synchronicity <laughs> that happens? You know, you ask questions oh, yeah. and you always get exactly what you need. How is this happening? Well, not always. You know, you only really get exactly what you really need. Fair. You know, if you know, your need is not that strong, you get something more vague. <laughs> it's meaningful right. to you. Sure. Yeah. But we need strong. Like I really, I thought I really needed to know what had happened when I was fifteen. Yeah. And so that need was strong, and it was unequivocal. Yeah. You know, I have, I have to tell you something funny. So you two are too young to remember a, a comedian, a television named Professor Irwin Corey. He would appear on like um, Johnny Carson on the Night Show and Ed Sullivan, if you know who he was. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, and he would always come out, and he would be dressed in a kind of shabby tuxedo with tails. I hope he had a top hat. And, and, and he wore high top basketball sneakers, <laughs> which those days were just basically the basic canvas shoes. Yeah. yeah. Not, not fancy now. Anyway, when you come out, people start talking to shrivel in kind of professor type language. This nonsense. Uh-huh. And then he would do his routine, it'd be very funny. And then he'd go sit down with Johnny Carson. And uh, this was all set up. You know, Carson would say to him, mm-hmm. um, Why do you wear sneakers? You go, you pose a two-part question. Why, as plagued philosophers throughout the sages, you know, throughout the ages, for generations and generations of years, far be it from me to try in this tiny space of life to me to answer the question of why. <laughs> Do I wear sneakers? Yes. <laughs> Do you know that second part? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So, so how does the tower work? I, you know, how is a question asked by you know the great stages throughout history? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Does the tarot work? Yes. Yes. <laughs> that's kind of the answer. I don't know anyone who really can say. And I know loads of people have answers. And the answer is the messages are coming from our spirit guides, from the other side, from the dead. And you know, there's the truth to that, I'm sure, but Ultimately, those are just, to me, they're kind of ways of explaining a mystery. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm not attacking them because what they're doing is very powerful. But for me, it's temperament, really. I like mystery. I don't like things that can explained easily. For sure. You know? No, and I respect I have that. a real private, private problem with it. It's a temperamental problem. It's not, it's not a concept of I'm right and anybody else is wrong. It's just my temperament is I prefer the world to be mysterious. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so how does the tarot work? I, I did a reading once, so in, I think it's in Forest of Souls, and uh, it was an interesting reading. And some of the cards that came up, um, the Chariot was the first card, and it came up because we, we will it to work. Right. We, we impose our will, that meaning will emerge from the cards. Hmm. And we impose that before the cards come out. Mm-hmm. So because to me, there's a dynamic exchange of energy between 
the reader, the person being read for, is another person, and the cards and the deck. I don't think the, you know, on one level, the deck is just a bunch of painted cards. Another level, though, I think it has its own dynamic living energy, and that connects with your energy. And of course, some people will say it's God who's giving the answer. Some people say it's um, it's it's the dead, the spirit world, the other side. Some people say it's you know angels. Some people say it's Satan. That's a very popular thing among yeah. some evangelical Christians. For know? sure. And um, but to me, all those things are just answers. They yeah. don't really come up with, with the whole truth because, you know, if there was only one truth, then people would know it. Right. Yeah. I said about life after death as well. Right. You know, a lot of people agree on certain things now, but different people agree on different things. Yeah. Yeah. So the whole other side and soul contract and soul family thing that we see a lot on YouTube, um, that's a very widespread agreement in a certain sense. There's a whole bunch of people. But then, of course, you have hardcore religious people who have a very fixed idea of what happens when you die and why are they wrong. You know, it's, it's hard yeah. to know. Yeah. So it's tarot, so it's very similar. Yeah. How does the tarot work? Another card that came up is. And the Shining Shrive deck, the card called Tradition, was like the Hierophant. Yeah. And it shows a circle of stones, which are meant to be goddesses disguised as stones, have a meeting. And then energy is coming in and out. So energy inside the circle is golden light. When it emerges, it goes out as multicolored. And that's daily life. The inside is the spirit world, inside is daily life. And then the other way, daily life goes in and then it becomes, it becomes spirit inside the circle. And so the answer, that's saying that the tarot cards are like transformers. You know, if you have a house, the energy in the electric wires is too big for the house. So the transformers have to step down the energy coming from the power company to a level that's usable for your house. It won't blow up all your electric things in the house. And so the tarot cards take raw spirit energy and they step it down into these pictures and meanings that it becomes useful to you. I love that. Isn't that a great idea? I you know, love that. But I couldn't, I could not state that this is a fact. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a wonderful idea that the tarot card suggested to me. Well, I think you'll like this. I did a very Rachel Pollock thing in that oh, I pulled, <laughs> I pulled a tarot card for each of the questions I had thought to ask you. Oh, cool. Wow. And the card that I pulled in, in response to the question, how does the tarot work? was the devil, which I thought was very cheeky oh, because yes, everyone's cheeky, so absolutely. afraid that the yeah. cards are coming from the devil. But I know, I love that, yeah. It kind, of, yeah. it kind of speaks to what you're saying here, which is this kind of threshold between ordinary reality and non-ordinary reality. And the cards yeah. work by kind of being in that liminal space, which is, is what the devil can suggest. So I think that's the sense of humor too, with the, right? with the cards. Yeah. You know, it's really, they, they know you don't believe that. Exactly. Right. So they're giving also, it to me. Yeah, but they know that you know about that idea. And it's like saying, well, it's just like saying, oh, well, you know the answer to that. It's the devil. It's me, Satan. <laughs> I mean, it's it's part of why I love the tarot so much is that sense yeah. of its aliveness. Absolutely, me too. I love uh, the sense of humor, really. really <laughs> for sure. Well, in the devil, I feel like of all the cards in the major arcana, like he's got the jokes, you know? Like if you want somebody <laughs> with jokes, you probably want to go sit with the devil. And a lot of people like him for that. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. they like him to, I did a reading once for someone 
So she would have readings with my partner every week, and my partner was available, so I said I would do it. But I was nervous. I didn't know what they'd been talking about and stuff like this. And the first girl was the devil. Oh, my God, the devil, what am I going to say? <laughs> and she goes, oh, my favorite card. Oh, good. <laughs> For the devilment party. Right. I mean, yep. Going to a party, having a wild time, having a really great time. That's what the devil meant to her. Yeah. I have the devil is, uh, we do a year ahead spread every year, and usually around January 1st or 2nd. And I have mm-hmm. the devil at the center of my of my spread this year. Oh, wow. And to me, because I have a Capricorn moon and the devil is associated with Capricorn, I'm thinking uh-huh. about the devil in terms of discipline. Because Capricorn really? is such a disciplined sign. And okay, when I enough. And when I think about my Capricorn moon and and how it really wants to be utilized with its grit and discipline and structure. Mm. It'd be easy for me to go, oh, the devil at the center of the center of the wheel, like, oh, it's going to be a really fun year, which I hope is true. But there's also yeah. a sense like, yeah, there's some discipline that wants to be explored. Yeah. I think. Um, also, if we look beyond your immediate environment, your immediate life, uh, it's a little bit of a scary prediction what kind of year it will be. Right. There's a lot of devil energy in the world right now and in the very most strictest negative sense. Yeah, to me, like sometimes when I think about the devil, and I've I've taken a lot of this from from you and your writings, this idea that if we can't handle the devil or the shadow within us, we're not going to be prepared for what comes after. Yeah, that's true. And so that feels like. Me, yes. Go on. I was going to say that feels like discipline too. Like we must be disciplined mm. in terms of how we relate to our own mm. shadow and our own darkness and mm. our own inner fear, so that we don't allow the outer stuff to. Yeah, but in the progress of the tarot. The devil is so late just because of that. But the implication is you've already done everything from, you know, magician to temperance. Right. Before you face the devil. Right. So since most of us haven't. Right. So we have to be a little more careful, of, you know, on that level. Too. Yeah. Yeah. It's the danger. Right. What's your birth date? I'm February 15th. 2-15. And what's your year? 1985. But then for this year, we get 2 15 2021. So we get um, two and five is seven and one is eight. One, two is three, two. Oh, so we get death. Yep. 13 is the death year. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that's so, it's a challenging year. It's a death year and then you get the devil as the central card. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For so sure. So what does it mean it to have a death lately. year? <laughs> well, I'm getting ready for it because Angel and I have this, you know, long going discussion about, you know, when does it start does it start on your actual birthday in terms of me shifting from the hanged man into death. Right. Yeah. yeah and sure. I'm starting to agree with Angel that it starts on your birthday. So I've got like a week and a half, I've got like a week left of hanged man before I step <laughs> into death. Well, hanged man is preparing for death yeah. in some ways. And oh, I have yeah. been. And I this this past year has been so much about surrender and trust and yeah. acceptance. And to me, I'm kind of looking forward to death as the next step for myself because I do feel like I am ready to be wholly changed. And Mm. we actually just moved out of where we'd been living for almost a decade and we're now closer to nature. Mm. And there's just, it does seem like I, the Brandon of 2021 is a rebirth and also a funeral for the Brandon that came before. Wow. So that's, so that's really something to track for the year. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, but I do feel you like a snake. Almost, like I almost feel like I'm picking up like the beginnings. Picking, picking up my shedding. Skin. Oh, skin. oh yeah. that's great. Yeah. Totally. Well, I'll try, to, I'll try to sweep it up along the way. Oh, it's fine. That's what I'm here for. 
So Rachel, you know, we're the spiritual gaze, you know, that's the, that's yes. the podcast. I love that name. Yes. That's the headquarters in which we kind of sit. Yeah. And we're really interested in the intersection, which I think is inherent between queerness and spirituality. And we've mm. talked a little bit about like the inherent spiritual nature of queer people and this idea that, you know, queer people and trans people have been around since the beginning. And nature keeps bringing us back because there is a really important purpose for our being here. Mm. And I'm just curious from your experience how you might just begin to speak to what is, what is the purpose for both queerness but also transness? What is the unique gift that that experience brings to the world? That's very difficult question to answer because it's hard to take it out of context. <laughs> I'm sure. Because mm -hmm. there's always a cultural context for any of these kind of queer things. Um, but we just, let me ask a question of you. Does the word queer encompass trans for you? For me personally, yes, it does. Yeah, because to me, I discovered there are people who do not see those two, do not see trans people as part of queer. And I find that disturbing. Mm. I, I know that the idea is that trans people should be visible on their own. But at the same time, I feel like, you know, a lot of trans kids, I think, would take comfort in being part of this larger queer culture. Yeah. For sure. And so I worry a bit about this. This is a personal thing. This came up in, in reading somebody's book. So Yeah, I think it's personal and I can't speak to the trans experience, uh -huh. yeah. but I know some trans people, you know, they want to pass and they want to be part of who they feel yeah. they've always been. And so they right. don't identify. I get that. Yes. It, you know, yeah. So, so I think in a certain sense, if any kind of, you know, not acceptable sexuality or identity, it's up to you, really, where you want to put yourself. Because, for instance, like, you know, Gore Vidal famously rejected the whole idea of gay or homosexual. Right. Because he thought that that was, that was trying to, like, put in a label and identity on people who just had their experiences and their, and their you know, their love mm -hmm. relationships. Why did it put you in a category, you know? But some people say, well, he was, you know, he is having trouble with self-acceptance, you know? So it's funny, you can't judge for other people, you know? But, so, but for me, it's like, certainly all these kind of things have been in, connected to spiritual traditions everywhere. But trans, more than most, because trans involves a breakdown of self into something else. Mm -hmm. At least some does. I mean, some people, they're totally trans from infancy. And so there's not any real change. Right. The only change is in allowing to be, be themselves. But, yeah. but for many people, though, even though it's from when they were very young, they resist it. And then there's a the sense of breaking, that breaking down and something else emerges. And what emerges is immensely powerful. So it's a shamanic level to that experience. And I know a lot of um, trans people talk about the moment of self-realization, the self-acceptance, which was one person, it was like a glass wall shattering. Hmm. Yeah, her life was always on the other side, but she couldn't quite reach it. But this is a, it's a common kind of thing um, that people allow themselves to look at it. They look at it, oh, yeah, yes, this is in fact who I am. I've been in denial all this time. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not really a woman, I'm a man. I'm not really a man, I'm a woman. This is my experience. I've I suppressed this for years and years all my life until my early 20s. And, um, and I just felt, through the circumstances, I could not, I could not keep pushing this away. And they said my greatest fear was that, you know, I wanted to be a woman. 
and said, okay, I'm going to look at this. I'm going to be open. I'm going to look at this. I'm going to say, is this really what it is? And the moment I did that, I go, no, no, I don't want I am a woman. Mm-hmm. And that's the truth. Yeah. And I, I was by myself and I came out and told my partner, I said, you know, like, I'm a woman. And my, you know, my partner just went with it. And it was funny because we were together. She was um, assumed straight. But then we became a lesbian couple. And for a while, people were so fascinated. This was unheard of it back then. This is like the 70s and 80s. It was so unheard of, you know? And people thought it was such a remarkable story and that we stuck together. And I said, no, you don't understand. Uh, she would have left me if I had been a man. Because hmm. she was becoming really awakened in, in a feminist kind of way. Yeah. And I really didn't want anything to do with men. At least at that time now, now it's different years later. But, you know, and so it was really important for her, too. It wasn't just me that wanted to change the situation. We both did, and so we fit together really well. There's something magical in the way it kind of takes you over, in the way that you can't deny it. And this goes for any kind of queer kind of thing. Yeah. You know, people who are gay or any other slightly less known letters in this alphabet soup, Mm-hmm. <laughs> like asexual. You know, those people have been in denial for a long time. And when they finally get that they have no interest in sex at all, they do not wish to have sexual relationships with people, that's a very, very powerful thing. And of course, it's very spiritual linking. Think of all the um, traditions that require uh, celibacy. Mm-hmm. And those traditions are artificial because they enforce it on people who are not asexual. Mm-hmm. But asexual people have an innate power because they're not sending the energy outwards. It, it, energy is contained and building up from inside. So all kinds of things like that. And trans people, though, there's a whole sense in which, you know, you can fight and fight against it, but then it takes you over, and then it's incredibly powerful. The metaphor I came up with a number of times, articles I wrote, was you're, you're in a river, and you're trying to swim against this very powerful current. And the best you can do is exhaust yourself by fighting it and maybe maybe keep from being drowning. Um, but eventually it will just sweep you away. But if you turn around and swim with the current, then you have this incredibly powerful energy carrying you along into amazing experiences. And some of those experiences are for sure magical. You know, I mean, this is so clear to me in things I've experienced that they would not happen if I had not already embraced this one magical aspect of my life. I mean, it's just interesting. We were talking earlier about the like personal myth-making. I yeah. Mean, this feels like such a powerful moment in the myth of Rachel Pollock. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, were there other sort of plot points <laughs> that led up to this for you, and particularly from like a spiritual perspective? My memory is, I'm probably wrong, my memory is the very first book I read on my own was the very first book Dr. Seuss wrote. He wrote it more years earlier, he wrote it 10 years before I was born, but it was his first book, and somehow that's the one that came into my hands. And it was, the title was something like, and to think I saw it all on Mulberry Street. And it was about this little kid whose father says to him, now you should pay attention to the world around you. You're going from school today, Look at what happens. I want you to tell me if you see something really interesting that happened. So the kid goes, starts home. He's on, and his walk is on a street called Mulberry Street. And he's, okay, I got to really look and see, you know, what I can tell my daddy, you know. And he sees, you know, someone coming by doing something. And he sees behind them other people. Then he sees there's a chariot. 
and it's being inside it's like an emperor. This is the chariot is being carried by elephants. This is lifted up in the air and it's on wings and it's being carried by gigantic birds and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, you know? And he's, he's thinking, and to think, you know, I saw it all on Mulberry Street. And then when he gets home, his father says, well, did you see anything? He goes, uh, no. Because <laughs> he knows he, his father would think he was lying, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I feel that that might shake me. All power to the imagination. Is, is a, that was an interesting slogan. In the 1968 uprisings in Paris, which was spiritual as well as anarchist. Uh -huh. Their slogan, you know, wasn't all powers of people and it wasn't, um, you know, kill the rich. It was, you know, all power to the imagination. Mm. And that really is my slogan, I would say. So after we speak, I'm sure I'll think of lots of mileposts. Yeah. Um, but nothing springs to mind immediately. Well, of course, you know, the tarot comes to me is certainly one of them. Right. I, I know you've told this story before, but I'm just curious. How did the tarot come to you? But and then also really, how did it how did you f sweep yourself away into the current of it even more so? Well, I was just I was teaching at this very cold college in upstate New York. And one of the other teachers, um, you know, said, if you give me a ride home, I'll read your tarot cards. And I knew next, next to nothing about them. I knew they were featured in T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland. And I knew it based on a book called Rituals Romance, which I read in college, which claims the tarot cards were um, derived from the Holy Grail stories and things like this. And, but I, otherwise, I knew nothing about them. And so I went there and she got the card, read my cards. And I was, I remember nothing of the reading. It was, I didn't feel it was said very much a consequence, but the cards themselves completely, absolutely floored me. And I just had to get them. You know, and what it was was you had these 78 pictures and every one of them was mysterious. Um, the major economy, well, I didn't know this term then, you know, they were grand figures who were like strange on their own, you know, but then the other ones, the minor arcana cards, they were like, Moments in a story. What happened before and what will happen next? Who knows? Where does it come from? You know, I remember the, the card I remember was the Fifth of Swords. I remember thinking, who are these people? <laughs> Where are they going? Why is, why is the woman and child all bent over? Right. Why is nobody speaking? You know, why are there swords in the boat? And my friend had this book by Eden Gray, the great teacher of that time. And you know, yeah, and I got it, when I got a deck, I got an Eden Gray book as well. And it seems at first glance that Eden Gray is giving you the simple explanations because it's very short. Her card, her book would have like um, a picture of the card taking up maybe half the page, you know, and then a little bit of description and then a few lines of what it means in readings. And that was it. So it seemed like I was explaining it. But in fact, the explanations were at least as mysterious as the cards. So it was just was so fascinating. I just had to get to do it. And my partner and I, her name was Edith. I was just speaking to her today. She's writing a book, which I'm so excited about, Edith Katz. And, um, and so we went racing around looking for tarot cards. And we finally found some. This was about a year before they became super popular. Okay. They were very hard to find, very obscure. And we did. We both started doing it, really got into it. And, you know, and we just both stayed with it in our different ways. So that was how I got into it. And that was uh, always, always exciting to me. And all these years, so it's you know, half a century now. Right. And um, so all these years, it's like, I sometimes say to classes, or I write, I say that the only thing I can say for certain is you will never come to the end of it. Right. Absolutely. There's always more and more and more being revealed in those cards, particularly the writer deck. I mean, 
you know, I did my own take, the Shining Tribe, which I get great power from. I, I, I love that, you know, people like it are artists. Artists and poets like it, which I think is quite wonderful. But still, I actually, in a certain sense, know the writer deck even better. Mm -hmm. But also, the writer deck, this whole continents, I don't know. And I know, because I know what I've just seen so far. Right. What I've explored so far. I, I, it's obvious there's lots else besides. Yeah, that writer deck, what... What Pamela did with those images was truly spectacular because yeah. it just keeps opening up unto itself. Yes. I use a deck that's um, called the Oliver Hibbert Tarot. I describe it as if the writer weight dropped acid because <laughs> it's the same people and the same structure of images, but it's quite psychedelic. And so their faces are melting and there's lots of eyeballs okay. and psychedelic yeah, colors. Yeah. And it's not so <laughs> easily gendered. You're not sure if it's a man or a woman. It's uh -huh. just a person with a melting eyeball face, which I think is helpful actually sometimes because I think one of the more contemporary criticisms of the writer is that it's just all a bunch of white medieval people. And so yeah, if you're not a no. white medieval person, it, it can sometimes feel like you're being barred entry from the mirror. I, I think that's people demanding that things made simple. Interesting. <laughs> I, I, I get it. I really do get it. I'm being facetious, facetious here. That's fascistic, facetious. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to pronounce that word. Anyway, um, like the court cards, you know, they don't have to be gendered the way the picture shows them. Right. right. And Pamela Coleman-Smith was very, um, I don't know if she's playful, I guess the word, about gender. Yeah. So, you know, some of her nicest female models, mm -hmm. um, and some of the queens had male models, you know. For sure. And, and she played a lot. And the pages, certainly the page of cups and the page of wands, I think, or maybe the page of pentacles, are very feminine. Yeah. yeah. And the only one that's really masculine is the page of swords. Right. Yeah, and that feels like that lends itself to the theatricality of it. Yeah, yeah. That piece of yes, it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and she herself, you know, she had a lot of lesbian friends. There's some question of whether she might be a lesbian. That's been contested because we don't have any real proof. Right. Um, I, went to, I went to this lecture by this wonderful British woman. She's a long-term occultist in, in the British community. She owns this famous bookstore. And, and she's very kind of, this great tech character type in England, which is um, posh, aristocratic, but really radical. Mm. And outrageous, you know? Love that. And she says, I'm going to try to imitate the accent. I'm do a terrible job. So I apologize. <laughs> but she says, the question has come up as to whether Pamela Coleman Smith might have been a lesbian. Well, um, all her friends were lesbians. <laughs> and she lived with a woman. And she never married a man. You make your own conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. If no, that wonderful. was your sister, we'd all know, you know. Yeah, say yeah exactly. You know, and, but, it's, but I mean, there's a certain lesbophobia involved in the assumption that you can't say she was lesbian mm. you don't have absolute proof because like that's saying a terrible thing about her right and mm. you say that unless you have absolute proof you know sure as opposed to in our world where that would be raising her up frankly <laughs> now yes <laughs> even for queer people it wasn't long ago in which she would never say something like that about someone unless you had proof right well i want to shift gears a little bit okay. um and ask you about the goddess because okay. your book the yep. body of the goddess it's just, it's such a nourishing exploration. Mm. And there's a, there's a quote that I want to kind of read back to you. You say that the goddess, she is not the same as the goddess of thousands of years ago. Mm. A religion based on the divine body is a religion of change. Mm. So I'm curious, 
who is the goddess of today? <laughs> How has she changed? And I get it. It's who? How, who am I to answer who? Right. The goddess yeah. of today? Yes. She exists. Is the goddess of today? Yes. Yes. She's here. <laughs> but I'm, I am curious if we could just explore, you know, how has the goddess changed? And, and who is the goddess that we need as contemporary people in these times in which we're living? I have to play with that question again, what you, what you just said. I think you could, if someone interview you, they could say, um, well, where do we find gay people? <laughs> right. You can do the two-part question with that. that would be right, good. right. Um, well, first of all, I mean, the goddess of old doesn't vanish. Right. But it's just, you know, she evolves. And all the different gods, of course, one of the great things about goddesses is not just one. Well, no, well some people there is. Mm -hmm. You know, some people talk about the one goddess. Right. You know? um, but most people into goddess worship, you really see that, you know, the goddess of a thousand names, Isis was called that. But you know, so Isis is very much present in our lives and it's certainly different. It's, it's not gonna be just like it was in ancient Egypt. But the ancient Egypt stuff feeds into what we have now, just as the ancient Roman versions of Isis do. A lot of our ideas of Isis come from Rome. They come from a famous uh, poem about Isis and Osiris. Um, no way, I take that back, that's actually, um, Eros and Psyche, which right. is based somewhat on Isis and Osiris. See, it's all, there's all these complicated things at that time, because everything was merging with everything else. And also things have evolved so much. You, you know, in Kabbalah, you'll have a lot of ancient mythological stuff that's completely refigured and repurposed, both Hebrew and non-Hebrew, you know? And they put it into their own form. This is constantly happening. So for religion to be living, even also, I think, Christianity, you know, my friends who are Christians, their sense of Christ is different than it would have been a thousand years ago or 200 years ago and so on. And the people who try to make it exactly what it was, I just, to me, if that's, if that's what's meaningful for them, that's great. You know, I shouldn't be sort of dismissive of them. But to me, it's like they're missing a lot. And also, probably it's also true that even people, like for instance, the, um, some of the neo-Orthodox Jews, some of them, I think, believe that they're completely following the Judaism of 700 years ago, mm -hmm. but they're not. It constantly evolves. And many of them know that too. They're very aware of that because they're always adapting things. They're always adapting laws that didn't have applications in the old times. Um, you know, I should actually check on this with somebody. There's a prohibition on the Sabbath of turning on and off lights which people think it's supposed to be about work. It's not really work to flip a switch. That's ridiculous. It's just being idiotic. But if you actually read up on that stuff, you listen to people who know, they say it's not about labor. It's about changing states of energy. Oh. You know, the energy should remain stable from Friday night to Saturday night. Oh. So you're not shifting out of that contemplative spiritual moment. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways you would shift out would be turning on a light or turning off a light. Right. Things like that. Um, so, but, but you can leave something on. Um, and in Israel, I guess this is about need. In Israel, when they were being attacked by rockets from Iraq, they had to have alerts, right? But the alerts would come over the radio and the Orthodox people couldn't turn on the radio. So the rabbis met and they made a rule. And this is so, the mind of the strictly Orthodox in any religion, um, that if it's not closed off, 
you know, if it evolves. So they made a rule. They said, you can leave the radio on. You turn it on Friday afternoon. You leave it on until Saturday night, but you can't have it loud enough to hear it. All you'll hear is a murmur. Then if there's going to be alert, the alert is very, very loud. So you'll hear it. And then you can use your elbow to turn the knob to make it loud enough to listen. <laughs> the elbow. <laughs> yes. The elbow. I love that. And, and the justification for that is not because you're an idiot, <laughs> yeah. which is, sounds, sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? The justification is you're not doing things the way you always do them. Hmm. You're not doing things in a mindless pattern that you would do for six days of the week. Got it. So you're still in a contemplative state to some Yeah, degree. you're still making a special effort to do it differently. And I, I just love that. And that, so that shows that even the most strictly traditional religious people evolve. Yeah. yeah. Because they have to. They live in a world that's different than it was hundreds of years ago. But the goddess thing evolves more dynamically because people are using it to address things of now, for sure. And partly because it was suppressed for so long. Right? Yes. So it's what, you know, Freud's famous line, line the return of the repressed, mm-hmm. which he meant in symptoms. Mm-hmm. That things you repress neurotically, they come out in symptoms. But the return of the repressed, it means also spiritual truth. Yeah. And I do feel like the underpinnings of the great world's religions are still hidden to us to some degree. Yeah. Um, just in kind of exploring my own Hebrew ancestry and, mm-hmm. and kind of going back in some journey work to like pretty far back ancestors. I have discovered, um, well, I'll just share with you. There's this one spirit with whom I work, who's an ancestor who kind of presents as a transcestor. And oh, that's great. And, uh, and I, I call them booby and has kind of shown <laughs> me about the more goddess roots of Judaism Wonderful. that, are not really found too much in the texts. Now, do you know the book, the um, two books, The Hebrew Goddess? I do not. The Raphael Patai. No, it's I don't a know that one. Major, major book. And then um, The Hebrew Priestess by Jill Hammer and someone else came with the other woman. No. And Jill Hammer, the other woman, Jill's a rabbi. I don't know if I say Jill, I don't know her personally. Um, <laughs> but she's a live around here, though. So. Anyway, but so she and this other woman founded a school to. Um, train and ordain priestesses in the Jewish tradition, going back to biblical times and bringing it to the modern day. So a lot of what that book is very much about is learning the ancient thing, ancient goddesses, the ancient figures, and then bringing it into the modern day. In Raphael Patai's book, The Hebrew Goddess, I think I, he worked with, did it with someone, I don't know if it was Jill Hammer, it might've been somebody else, it might've been her. But he began by talking about, um, you know, in ancient times, who was the goddess of ancient Israel? that was suppressed by the you know, patriarchal religion. Right. And how did that figure in people's lives? Then he went on to medieval and the Shekinah, um, and that became a big thing. But then, then it became brought out by contact with goddess people. Those are two books that would be very meaningful to you. Thank you for sharing that. I'm Hebrew excited. Hebrew goddess and the Hebrew priestess. Dive in there. Um, well, I want to share with you just one thing, which is that we recently moved out of like central Los Angeles and we're kind of on the outskirts in a part of town called Tahunga, which is okay. a, um, it's an indigenous word, which means woman's place or possibly oh, cool. wow. uh, grandmother. And so there's uh-huh. this mountain, it's the big Tahunga mountains. And there's this one <laughs> mountain and I was reading your book, The Body of the Goddess, and the synchronicity of one day just we're in this new house and we're looking out at the mountain and you can see the profile of a grandmother's face in the mountain. I mean, it's- And that's part of why, I'm sure. Yeah, and it's so clear and you understand, oh, right, this is the grandmother whom they were naming in this place and you can 
relate. So when I'm when I'm doing work, and we've only been here a couple of weeks now, but it's I can feel that presence, you know, that direct oh, yeah. connection to that's wonderful, yeah, to you know. the goddess. But it's it's one aspect, and I love hearing you say there's many goddesses, but you know, they're all aspects of of the goddess, or they're all connected in some way through mm. this. But I think at the same time, it's just as important to keep their individuality. Yes, mm. you know. Right. I, I find that some people want to merge it because it's, it's so monotheistic. Right. And they feel it's right. really important to merge stuff. You know? No, I think that's important. Like Athena is not Hecate, right? They have very mm. different expressions. Although I actually have this new theory. Okay. Which is that Medusa is Athena of the snakes. Oh. But that actually, <laughs> Athena was a snake goddess, and then they took it away from her. And then they had it be the enemy that she conquers. Oh, wow. And had it to do head in her shield. Part of the reason for this was that a friend of mine who's connected to a lot of this research, she told me that before the Acropolis, um, before the Parthenon, I guess it was, on the hill of the Acropolis, there was a, a wooden temple to Athena, and it was a snake temple. And the priests of the morning they would feed the snakes, snakes would come around and be fed. And then it burned down. My friend says the suspicion it was burned down by the men. Because, of course, the Parthenon is a totally masculine place. And Athena was then reimagined as completely dedicated to patriarchy. Oh, fascinating. You know? And so, so I got that, this is fairly intuitive, and I have no proof, that um, Medusa was actually Athena. I love so that. So now I have several Medusa necklaces. I, I, call, I always call her Athena of the Snakes. I, I, I wish you could see there is a Medusa sticker on my computer yeah. that I'm looking oh, at great. right now. There's only two stickers on this computer, and I'm so drawn to Medusa. Um, oh, yeah. Great character, isn't she? Yeah. yeah she's yeah. phenomenal. And the snakes. And, and interesting that you called me a snake shedding my skin earlier know, right? today. Angel. Yeah. So I'll have to lean into that. You should. Well, I'm aware that we need to, to start to wind things down here. So... In closing here, Rachel, I did another, I think, very Rachel Pollock thing, which I <laughs> used the Shining Tribe Tarot, and I said, what questions am I not thinking to ask Rachel? Oh, I love that, yes. <laughs> so I shared the four cards I pulled with Angel, and he chose okay. one and I chose one. So I think okay. we're just going to tell you what those cards are, okay. and you might help us discern what questions have we not asked you based okay. on these cards. <laughs> okay. So, so here's what I did. I kind of looked at all the cards, and I thought, okay, what are they kind of leading me to? And this is what I, this is kind of what I came up okay. with. So, so let me just tell you what all the cards were, just so you understand. So it was eight of trees reversed, nine mm -hmm. of birds, knower of rivers reversed, and the hanged woman. Wow. And so my question or what I wrote was not being afraid to surrender to your path, but also not getting stuck in any one expression of the soul. So much reinvention in your life. And yet always, always a storyteller, always a knower of rivers. Um, yeah, it's reversed. Right. So that's an interesting question. So what comes to mind would be, in what way have you not yet emerged from the cave? Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Or maybe, or maybe what, did, what did you resist knowing? Yeah. Yeah, you know, so those are difficult questions, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to answer that myself. I'd have to do the cards to answer that. For sure, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, but I'll think about that. But that's a beautiful question. I think even just to pose to our listeners too, which is to contemplate, yeah. like, in what ways have you still not emerged from the cave? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or what ways you need not to emerge? What ways you need to stay, spend more time in the cave, right. in a positive kind of sense? Yeah, 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 and stay hidden in some ways. Yeah. And, 
or even or even as you know as you emerge from the cave what do you keep back or keep with you of your experience in the cave mm, right because you know a certain sense that once we emerge we're now in this whole new reality and the old stuff is left behind right actually no rivers river and hind woman are both about you can no rivers can think about being born and the high woman is of course about being born because mm -hmm. babies are born upside down right head first all kinds of wonderful things you can come up with that yeah well interesting just hearing everything you said and also hearing that you are working on your memoir which is so exciting yeah i'm very excited about that and, and that so that's a certain that answers the question too yeah um, i'm in the cave still because i'm going back into the cave right to re-experience certain things that i'm bringing out into the world but then maybe so maybe maybe what's really going on is not being in or out but going back and forth right yeah and what do you keep <laughs> sort of tucked within and what do yeah. you out with? Yeah. So what was the other the other card? Oh, says, mine was the nine of birds because that's such a such a electric card. Um, wow, two transit cards. Yes. Know? Yeah. And I think that that certainly says a lot to me. That's something to really think about. But I should write that down. Think <laughs> <laughs> about doing readings about it. Maybe you know. Wow. Yeah. Nine of Birds is definitely one of those cards that you know you don't really want to see. No, for sure. You have to reframe it when it shows up so you can greet it properly. Yeah. Well, you know, you can also focus on the nice stuff, you know. <laughs> the goddess coming out of the tomb. Totally. Anyway, yeah, so I'm definitely going to be thinking about those two cards. Well, Rachel, this has been such a delight for us. I'm so grateful. Oh, it's really been, I've really had a great time. Thank that you. That you came yeah. to the spiritual gaze universe. I or I love what you said, tarot land. So I'm going to start calling it <laughs> the spiritual gaze okay. land. Thank you for yeah. coming into the spiritual gaze land with spiritual us. Spiritual gaze land. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> well, thank you. This really was wonderful. I really had a great time. Oh, good, Rachel. Thank well, you thank so you. Much. Thank you so much. And yeah. Okay. So nice to meet you. Take care. Yeah, you too. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Well, we hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as we enjoyed having that conversation. Oh my God. Again, beyond grateful for Rachel for taking the time to talk to us. We adored the experience. <laughs> yeah. And it was just so fun. I think one of the great things about Rachel is having all of her knowledge and all of her experience, she also doesn't claim to know. And I think that's one of the biggest things I'm learning from her is not to be so quick to think you know something esoterically right. and to lean into the mystery, which also I think allows for a lot more fun and play and joy. And I think we forget that like living a spiritual life should be a life that is full of joy and play and it should lighten your load, not heavy it. For sure. All righty. So well, let's do a playful poll. Let's do a playful poll. Yes, exactly. So just take a moment, connect to the cards by listening in to the sound of them being shuffled and just knowing that this card will resonate no matter the future place or time to which you listen to this episode of The Spiritual Gaze. <laughs> and just asking for one card that serves as a powerful transformer to let us know what sort of spiritual energy is wanting to work with us at this time. All right, here we go. And the card is... Oh, she's the Ten of Wands reversed. Oh. So the figure in the Ten of Wands is holding ten wands and is struggling to hold them all and is sweating up a storm. 
And you can see that these 10 wands, when they're bundled together in this way, they really just look like firewood. But they're magic wands. Each and every one of these wands is a magic wand, but too many of them, and they kind of lose their power. So first and foremost, the 10 of wands is sometimes an indication that you may be approaching burnout, which feels pretty accurate, considering where we all are in the story of this pandemic. I think we're all reaching burnout to some degree. And the medicine of the 10 of wands is to just put some fucking wands down. Like, you don't have to do it all alone. Ask your community to help you. But also, maybe there's an opportunity to reprioritize everything that you think needs to get done. Maybe it doesn't. Because ideally, you're like, you know, maybe just holding two wands, like a wand for each hand and like a third if you have to put one in your mouth, you know? But like, no more than that. Ten wands is too many for any one person to carry on their own. So the reversed quality might just be that you're not sure how to proceed. You're not sure which wands need to be set down. And the reverse quality might also be that you're struggling to ask for help. You're struggling to reach out. Tens, they invite our community to help us. And consider that like these 10 wands, if you feel compelled to carry 10 wands, it's not just for you, right? You must be holding some wands for other people. So it's time, especially in the interest of Aquarius season, to be asking other people to carry the wands that you're carrying for them. And maybe like they can hold a wand for you. Not so playful, unfortunately. No. <laughs> Juggle. You can juggle the wands, you know? But I think it's true, you know? Mm -hmm. like we really have to not try to do too much. We have to remember that we are under really strained times and to not ignore that, to operate from within that context. Well, and I think it is just Aquarian to remember that you don't have to carry them all alone, you know? That what that one soul figure may not recognize is that there's potentially someone with nothing in their hands off picture, perhaps. Totally. So you can like, put some things down. Who'd be thrilled to have a wand to carry of their own. Exactly. Um, speaking of community, we do have a couple of opportunities oh, we do. to connect in the spiritual gaze community. There are two classes that are open for registration. Mm -hmm. um, the first is chart and soul. The magic of astrology. It's our signature astrology class. It's 11 weeks. It starts in March, I believe on the 11th. Yes. She's fierce. She's sassy. She's fierce. She's sassy. And she's accessible whether you're a beginning astrologer or an intermediate astrologer. This course is designed to help you really understand how to read a chart, starting with your own and then other people's. Yeah. And we really try to just like ground it in, you know, reality and practicality. And, practicality yeah. and, you know, really try to make it as accessible as we can, as well as fun. There you'll get some play. Yeah. And then we also have our advanced tarot magic course coming up. So this is the first time we're teaching this class. Mm -hmm. It's very exciting. It's seven weeks and it's about going more deeply into the cards and even challenging some of your preconceived notions about how to work with the cards. So this is a class for people that already know the cards. You don't have to be an expert by any means. But whereas Tarot Cosmos is 12 weeks that teaches you the cards, this is kind of building on that. So if you know the cards, even if you just know a word or a phrase or you just do daily card pulls for yourself, you're definitely prepared to jump into this class. And especially for those that took Tarot Cosmos, this is kind of the next level of that. But it's by no means a prerequisite. You just want to know going into the class what the cards mean, because it's not really so much a teaching the cards from scratch course. It's more about really exploring and expanding how the tarot can do so much more than just tell you the future. Yeah. So you can find out all the info for these um, at our website, thespiritualgaze.com under the spirit school tab. And we also um, on Thursday, the 18th at 5.30 p.m. Pacific 
time, we have our uh, Pisces season Astro Club. Oh, it's going to be soupy and dreamy. Yeah. So if you just kind of want to drop in for a fun 90 minutes of Astro Tea, you can also just do that for us. Yeah. Just get a taste of our style of holding space and teaching and meet some community members. And also breathwork. It happens every other Saturday. It does. We have a fucking awesome breathwork fam that kind of show up every two weeks to heal Mm -hmm. and share vulnerability and breakthrough. So perhaps you want to join us for that. Yeah, so you can find out info on Astro Club and uh, Breathwork Circles also at our website, but under the webinars tab. It's all on the website, yo. Yes, it's your place to be. You can sign up for our uh, newsletter there as well, but you can also always find us on Insta at The Spiritual Gaze or on Twitter at Spiritual Gaze, Facebook as well, we're there. And you can always just cold call email us the way I did to Rachel at exactly. gaze at gmail.com. And we will do our best to get back to you. In a timely fashion. <laughs> but anyhow, thank you all so much for taking the time and for being just an amazing part of our world. We are so grateful to have each and every one of you listen to the show, support the show, and be a presence in our lives. And we hope that we are able to be a strong, supportive presence in yours as well. All right, Gazers. Thanks for being here. Until next time, this has been your transit through the the spiritual game. Gaze with a Z. Z.